Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm joined by acclaimed YouTuber and inspirational historian Hilbert of the notable YouTube channel History with Hilbert. Over the past week, I've had the privilege of working with Hilbert and preparing something very special for all of our listeners. Today, Hilbert and I will be presenting you with a collaboration that we've been working on about why the Viking Age began, as well as the existence of Shield Maidens. Hilbert, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for the kind introduction as well. I'm really excited. I've really enjoyed listening to the previous podcasts on here, and I'm thrilled to finally be in one of them myself and honored to be joined by you for this discussion. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a real treat to have you on. I would love for you, Hilbert, to start off the discussion today by um, making a case for why the Viking Age began. You know, why did these people from Scandinavia go off raiding and exploring and writing the sagas and doing these great and incredible deeds that they did? Why did the Viking Age begin? Well, that's a really pivotal question. And obviously, no one here doubts that the Viking Age happened. But really, even when it began is a question, although really everyone thinks you know, the mainstream idea is that 793 is the key date there for the raid on Lindisfarne. But why it happened is a lot more complicated. So one of the reasons at the time that the Christian monks were writing about was that the Vikings simply couldn't stop having sex. And for this reason, obviously, the um, limited space among the fjords in Scandinavia, especially Norway, was soon taken up by all these little Viking babies. And they had to do something. So what else could they do but harry the good Christian folk of Europe? Now, this is one interpretation Another interesting way of looking at why it started, obviously, is related to the rising power of the Frankish Empire. Did that have a religious connotation? Obviously, they converted the Germanic peoples like the Frisians and the Saxons, among others, at the point of the sword. And were the people in Scandinavia worried that the same thing would happen to them, lest they stop the rising power of Christianity? Or was there another dimension that it was connected to trade? Obviously, with the capture of Frisia, the main trading area in, in the region had shifted shifted from being a free trade to being connected to this Christian world, a Christian world that Scandinavia wasn't part of and so fell outside of this trade lane, as well as the fact that traditional trading lanes that had been open since arguably before the Bronze Age had all changed. But when these factors all come together, it really paints a clear and a vivid picture of why people could go out and do what the Vikings did. Was it out of necessity? Was it out of boredom? Or was it somewhere between the two? And it's a really interesting question for discussion. You know, it is. And I really agree with what you're saying in that everything sort of aligned perfectly for the Vikings and the people of Scandinavia for the Viking Age to begin, you know, the trade routes and the massive trading network that the Vikings had established over time really allowed for easy sea access to the places of wealth and the monasteries, which at the time actually acted as places for imported goods to come in. So monasteries really held unimaginable wealth and were cash cows And the Vikings because of their trading networks had access to those and easily could point out where they were. Mm, absolutely. And the point you make about monasteries is so true, especially in the British Isles, places like Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne was founded by brothers from Iona, which is one of the islands in Scotland, who had themselves been founded by monks from Ireland. And their tradition of finding a place for a monastery was somewhere that was like a hermitage. And this, if you trace it right back, goes to the Bible and to people who'd go off into the desert. Well, there's very few deserts in Ireland and Scotland, as you'll know, but they did have the sea. And so they 
built all their monasteries in islands and places that were facing the sea, thinking, oh, well, nothing's going to come from over there until suddenly it did, which was obviously, as you say, a perfect opportunity for these pirates, these Vikings from Scandinavia to come in and seize what the monks had acquired there. Yeah. And that's one thing is the Vikings had this element of mobility right at their fingertips. Their ships were so mobile, they were able to battle the turbulent winds of the high seas as well as sail right up to the shoreline and down shallow rivers. The monks and the Anglo-Saxons and the the people that the Vikings raided certainly weren't expecting an attack from the sea, but I actually don't know too much about it. But did the other kingdoms of Europe at the time have any sort of naval defenses that they implemented to combat Viking raids? That's a very good question. Um, Now, and it's a hard one to answer as well, because the Franks definitely had some form of navy, but they weren't particularly effective at stopping the um, Vikings. So we do hear about various Frankish boats being built. And we do later on hear about that Alfred the Great in England was the first to build a, a navy with the intent purpose of fighting the Vikings where you know they were unchallenged, which was on the sea. Um, although really... Instead of building a navy to combat the Vikings, what most European kingdoms and indeed the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms did was to essentially defend their rivers because the rivers were the way that the Vikings could get inland. So in England, for example, you've got the Thames that goes in, you've got the Tyne near to where I live, you've got the Weir, um, you've got rivers on the other side. So you've got the um, the Mersey and all of these rivers that literally crisscross the country. So really the Vikings could get pretty much anywhere they wanted in a few days of travel from the boat. And then obviously in Europe, you've got the Rhine that goes right the way through the Netherlands and Belgium today. So Frisia back then, um, you've got the, is it the Elbe, which takes, which could take, I think it's the Elbe that could take them right the way to Hamburg. You've got right into France as well. You've got the Seine and the Loire. So they could get anywhere they wanted, but eventually they realized, oh wait, they're using our rivers to get deep into our territory. So they would start to build these forts on either side. So in, in Anglo-Saxon England, you have had the burrs as well. And they and they realized if you closed off the river mouths, then they couldn't use their ships to to literally cut right into the middle of the country. Um, and then obviously Alfred as well, he he was the one who really built the first English navy as we would recognize it today, which is very interesting. So that's remarkable. And we've talked about the fortification of rivers, which is certainly important. Gunpowder wasn't existent at the time and cannon wasn't existent. So what did a naval warfare look like at the time? Would there have been ramming into each other, uh, the use of fire and flaming arrow? What would that have looked like? Well, that's a, a very interesting thing thing that you say there at the end, because obviously there is the famous journey of um, Bjorn Jarnsida, so Bjorn Ironside, who sailed through the Mediterranean. And he, of course, his fleet was famously attacked by the Byzantine fleet, who were using a weapon called Greek fire, um, which was this kind of a, a sort of, dare I say, a dark age napalm, this kind of construction that they used to burn enemy ships. So when they went into the Mediterranean, they definitely faced naval forces that were much more advanced than they were. So, um, um, although as advanced as they were. So obviously they faced the Byzantines there and also um, various Moorish fleets. So in the south of Spain that had been conquered by the Moors at that time, they faced those as well. So that was a, a real threat to them out to sea. But we do know about sea battles that happened in Scandinavia. So there's a very famous one at Hafersfjord, which is um, the 
essentially the, the reason that Norway became a kingdom because of the unification of Harald Fairhair, who ended up winning that battle, um, as well as I believe that the battle of, although I may be wrong in saying that the battle of Stiklestad, that that was also fought at sea. And, and, and I believe that these combats were that there would be ships filled with mail-clad warriors and other warriors, and that they would probably ram into each other. They'd essentially get close enough for melee combat um, and close enough for one side's men on one ship to get onto another ship and essentially kill everyone on that ship and take the ship. I think it was a very brutal nature of um, fighting at sea because if you fell in in all of your mail, well, that was you gone. You were being dragged to the bottom, um, which is which is really an, a very interesting concept of of the kind of fighting that would happen in the in the pre-cannon, the pre-gunpowder age of the Dark Ages and the Viking Age. And you've mentioned the Byzantine Empire, and we actually know that the capital of the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, was one of the most heavily, if not the most heavily defended cities in the world, but yet the Vikings were somehow able to besiege it. How were the Vikings able to do this? Were the ships of Byzantium unable to access the rivers because they weren't designed in the same way that the Viking ships were? Were they just too larger? How were the Vikings able to besiege Constantinople? Um, well, I must admit, I don't know too much about the various Viking attempts to take Constantinople, although what I would imagine is that it would be more a sort of blockade of Constantinople. So obviously with, I believe it was that they either sailed down the, um, the I think it would be the Dnieper in um, the Ukraine if you sail down that way, or definitely through some of the rivers in Russia, you end up in the, and let me get this right, I think it's the Black Sea. And then from there, you can you can sail through the Bosphorus. And obviously that is where the point where Europe meets Asia, which is in the middle of that is Constantinople. So I think it would have been more of a, a blockade. Um, I know they weren't actually successful in capturing Constantinople, although they were paid an awful lot by the emperor to leave, which happens quite a lot um, and says quite a lot about motivations of, of these various Viking attacks as well. And obviously later on in England, this would become known as Danegeld, so Dane money, um, literally money to make the Danes go away. But I think, yeah, I think the siege of Constantinople, if I were to guess, although again, I don't know too much about that the, the specific various sieges on Constantinople, they were probably carried out by Swedes who went down the rivers of Eastern Europe, is that it would be rather more a blockade, um, especially from the Bosphorus from that strait uh, to try and get the city to capitulate. And then obviously later on, they went away when they were paid by the emperor. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the emperor was actually so impressed that he commissioned some sort of Viking warriors as his personal bodyguard. Yeah, that's absolutely that right. Um, and they became some of the most famous and esteemed Vikings of all. So actually, um, Varangian is the word that the the Byzantines, I, th- I believe it's a Greek word, um, because they, they started speaking Greek at this point rather than Latin, which had obviously been the language of the Roman Empire. And Varangian is the word that they had for the, well, what we would call the Viking or the early Scandinavian peoples, um, which down there would have been the majority would have been Swedish because while the Norwegians and the Danes went west, so to England, Scotland, Ireland, um, the Netherlands, Germany, France, Iceland, you name it. The Swedes were the ones who went down, settled in Ukraine, Russia, and through the rivers into sort of that area to trade with, amongst others, the Caliphate of Baghdad um, and obviously the Byzantines themselves. And the story goes that indeed they were so impressed with these Varangians, these tough barbarians from the north, that they enlisted them as the elite guard. And they really did did become an essential part of the guard, um, so the special troops that defended the emperor. And some of the most 
famous Vikings in history, so Harold Hodrada, who famously fell in 1066 trying to capture the English throne. He was famous for being one of them as well. And there's all sorts of adventures with him and with Byzantine queens who try and seduce him, but he's not that into it, so eventually he has to flee. But uh, you get a lot of really interesting stories about the various Varangian guard, and th- their valor is definitely noted. So, for example, at the Battle of Manzikert, which was, I believe, the Byzantines fighting the latest Turkish invasion in Anatolia, there you also get that all the uh, Varangian guards fell around the emperor, um, as well as other battles where they were crucial to the victory just because they were the madmen with the big axes, if you will. Remarkable. And you know, where do we get these accounts from? Are they from Middle Eastern accounts and Byzantine um, accounts? I, th- I think largely Byzantine accounts. Obviously, they didn't write much down. Although, interestingly enough, in the Hagia Sophia, which is, well, it was the big cathedral and now it's the big mosque in, in Istanbul, which back then was Byzantium. On top of one of the pillars, you can see runic carvings scrawled into the marble, um, which is very much like modern graffiti, very out of place as well in such an, uh, you know, an, an Eastern, um, you know, civilized in, in the kind of Greco-Roman manner. But you do find these runes. So that's some evidence from sort of the, the Viking perspective, as well as uh, in Sweden, you find rune stones saying, uh, I don't know, um, Gunnar and Leif, they went east. So usually going east, that was sort of a, a euphemism for joining the Varangians or going out that way. But we do actually have some very interesting comments on them by various Muslim sources. So for example, from the Caliphate of Baghdad, again, we have a man called Ibn Fadlan, and he went into the east, into the areas where these these Swedes were sailing down the great rivers. And he is the reason that we have in pretty much most of Viking programs on TV, there is always a burial. And you always have the burial with this, this this one slave woman who goes and she sleeps with all the men. And then obviously there's a big ship, all the horses are put on, then she's later killed and put on there. And then the chief is on there. And with all his possessions, he, that's set alight and uh, put out to the river. And it's thanks to this guy, Ibn Fadlan, that we know about this, because he's the one who wrote this down when describing a people he called the Rus. And it's thought that the Rus might be named after red due to the color of hair of the various Swedes who came down. And of course, Rus is also where we get the name of Russia. So the um, sort of story, and I'm going on a bit of a segue here, but the Vikings in the East are, are, are very important. And we do have a couple sources from the East, uh, which is interesting. So we don't just have sources about them from people who were being killed by them, like we do the majority of the time in the West. So you've mentioned, can you tell me his name again? Is it uh, yeah, that's Ibn right, Fadlan? So he himself was not a Viking. Um, no, he he was a Muslim. I believe he will have been from around the area of modern day Iraq. And he was the one who kept all of the written accounts of the Viking activity in the East, um, correct? Well, he was initially, if I'm remembered, he was a courtier or someone important in um, in the local government. But for one reason or another, I think it had to do with another man's wife, which never really ends well. Um, for one reason or another, he was he got into the, the caliph's bad books. And so he the caliph sent him out on a diplomatic mission to vaguely the north, go and find out what they're doing over there. And somewhere on his travels, he runs into this group that he describes as the Rus. And we believe that this group were Vikings, um, although he himself obviously wasn't a Viking. Yeah, I've, um, I've 
tried doing some research on him recently because those accounts of the Vikings, I mean, obviously Scandinavia is so far away from Constantinople and the Middle East and the Mediterranean. They were really able to travel the world. I mean, the Vikings, you know, from uh, Newfoundland to Baghdad, Iraq, and from Denmark to France to Germany to essentially founding Russia, the Vikings were just able to see so much of the mm, world. It really is amazing for such a time. And I think that's why they're so remembered, because while other cultures at the time had aspects of them. So if you look at trade, well, you know, the Frisians were trading or if you look at boats, well, yeah, Anglo-Saxons had boats and things like that. But it's really the the combination of everything that I think makes the Vikings stand out and so special. Because at the same time, with they're, they're sailing across the ocean, you know, they reached Iceland and then they reached Greenland and then they reached North America, which, you know, it's amazing if you think about it, if you think that they are literally in these very, very shallow um keeled boats sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, something that wouldn't happen for another God knows how many hundred years. But at the same time, they're going through the rivers of Eastern Europe, literally carrying their boats across the bits of the river that weren't deep enough for them to sail just so that they could get through wow. um, into obviously the the Black Sea, I believe, and then Constantinople afterwards. It really is amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. And I have to ask you, because you're, of course, from England, have you had any opportunity to go see some Viking related history, perhaps some monasteries or um, Viking ship museums? or any sort of Viking related uh, yeah, historical I've been sites. really lucky. So I um I'm living in Northumberland at the moment and I reckon it'd take me about two hours drive, at which point I would reach a place called Bambra. And um, Bambra was known to the Anglo-Saxons as Bevanbur. And just across the strait from Bambra, and you can only reach it at certain points in the day because the tide comes in and then it becomes an island, which again is why the Celtic Christians who built it thought it was so attractive because they could be hermits there, is Lindisfarne. So that's where it all began. And you know that's two hours away from where I live, which is pretty amazing. Um, and I live, and I'll try not to give away where I live, but I live on the River Tyne. And in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and other places, the Tyne is mentioned quite a lot. And it's mentioned that the Vikings sailed past the Tyne. So the Vikings sailed past my house to get to Hexham, where there is an abbey, which they burnt down. So, you know, it really is amazing that when I walk down to the river, well, some 1,500 years ago, um, 1,500, no, my math is awful, 1,000 something years ago, you know, a Viking ship probably could have been sailing past there. Um, and obviously York is absolutely brilliant for the Vikings. Obviously that was Jorvik to them. You have the Jorvik Viking Festival where I was I was lucky enough to be there um, this February and York is just absolutely fabulous with the Jorvik Viking Museum as well. Uh, so there's so many chances to see things here. But also in the Netherlands, um, if you visit Vijk by Duurstede, which was known as Dorestede to the Frisians, well the Vikings went there as well. They raided that place. So there's the connection between where I live and where I come from and the Vikings connect both of them, which is really cool. And you've mentioned the Frisians and the Netherlands. So the Anglo-Saxons were, of course, the people who the Vikings would have encountered during their raids in England. So sort of people would the Vikings have encountered in the Netherlands? Would that have been primarily Frisians um, then? Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting question with the Vikings in the Netherlands, because sometime in the the early 8th century, the last parts of Frisia, so parts of uh, the Netherlands and northern Germany, had been conquered by the Franks. So 
while when they came to the Anglo-Saxons in England, they'd been living there for a while, when they came to the Netherlands, the situation was more complicated because while you had ethnic Frisians who had before been independent and had their own kingdoms and traded with various parts of Europe, when the Vikings arrived, there were still obviously these people living there who are probably the ancestors of most people in the Netherlands today, even though now in the Netherlands, Frisians refers to only people from the province of Friesland. Um, although back then, Frisia was a general area of the low countries along the coast. But when the Vikings arrived, you had these ethnic Frisians, but you also had the Franks who had become the conquerors in that area. So the dynamic between that is very interesting. And actually, we have reason to believe that it's very possible that some of these ethnic Frisians will have come with the Vikings onto raids. So in on attacks in, in England, for example. So one of the leaders of the Great Heathen Army, obviously in the 860s, who came to Britain, was called Ubba Dux Frisonum, which in Latin is Uber Duke of the Frisians. So it's not unrealistic to suggest that there were Frisians in his retinue who fought with him. While at other points in history, um, for example, on the island of Volcheren in uh, in the south of the Netherlands, there's evidence there. it's written that the Frisians came together and defeated the Vikings in battle. So the relationship between raider and victim is a lot more blurred in in the Netherlands with with the Frisians, who had traditionally also been pagan. So there was more of a connection between them and the Danes, which makes it a very interesting contrast to, say, attacks on the, the Frankish heartland or on Anglo-Saxon England or the various kingdoms of Ireland and Scotland. Yes, because many people don't realize the, the vast differences of the people that the Vikings fought against and encountered, whether that be, you know, the Franks, Frisians, obviously, that we just talked about, the Anglo-Saxons, the people of Ireland, the Native Americans briefly, when they had explored and colonized, you know, what is modern day Newfoundland off the coast, mm. northeastern Canada. It's, it's absolutely fascinating and and we really um, sometimes it's it's easy to forget how many people they encountered and, and all the ways that they tried to make sense of who they encountered. So one of my favorite little tidbits of knowledge about the Vikings is that when I think it's the ninth century they started to sail around Spain, um, sail into the Mediterranean. They also obviously for the first time encountered black people or people with dark skin, and they called them Blauman, which means blue men. And there's all sorts of stories that they thought are oh, wow. these people alive or dead because they're black. Um, and obviously in in the south of Spain at that time, as I mentioned, it was uh, Moorish and, and Muslim. And they it's interesting how they reacted differently to the different belief sets they encountered. Obviously, they encountered Christendom, um, but they also encountered Islam in that region. And actually, very interestingly, and I, I shared this on my Twitter the other day, because it's one of those stories that I find fascinating. And I believe it's from before the Viking Age, but in a, a grave in Sweden, they even found a small Buddha. And that Buddha obviously had come from India. So it really goes to show some of the connections. And obviously this was a very rich person who had this. This was a high class item. Not everyone was, you know, carrying a Buddhist statue and had a Krishna hanging on the wall because, you know, the Vikings were best pals with everyone in India. But it really does go to show the kind of the connections through trade that existed in that age, some of the interconnections um, that were there, which is really a fascinating thing when you think about it. It is just fascinating. Well, Hilbert, we promised people that we would talk about 
a slightly more controversial topic, and that is, of course, whether shield maidens existed. Uh, shield maidens referring to Viking warrior women. So, Hilbert, why don't you start us off? I've prepared quite a bit for this as well, and then I'll contribute to it, and we'll just sort of get a discussion flowing here. Make your case for us on the existence of shield maidens, and perhaps even to properly understand shield maidens and whether their existence is true or not, we must first seek to understand the role of women in Viking society in general. So why don't you mm, take it away, Well, Hilbert? this is one of those other really interesting topics, and it's something that's been in the news quite a lot lately. Obviously, if you've been watching Vikings, Vikings makes a huge deal about arming and armoring all um, or, or, or many of the women in the show to be these kind of warrior women. And it has got questions asked about, is this accurate? And how should we feel about this? And then especially with recent discoveries of graves that had been assumed to be men because they were buried with weapons, and then they tested the bones and they found that some of them were women. And you essentially get a few various camps of what people believe. And really what I have found is that two extremes that say one half of all Viking Vikings were women and the other extreme that says there was never a woman in Viking society that ever picked up a weapon and fought are false. I think there's no real getting around that those two extremes are wrong. So we've set up the goalposts but then really the target is somewhere in between the two and I think it's it can be really difficult to find what is sort of the, the, the norm in the society or what was the exception. Although I think that's really what we have to work with, as well as how we would interpret various pieces of evidence, whether it's literary or archaeological, um, in various places, and whether that should then be transmitted onto the entire society. So with one of the studies that I mentioned, obviously they, they'd found several um, graves uh, in the uh, east of England, so from probably the, the Great Heathen Army a little bit afterwards, and they'd found women buried there. And then suddenly you saw headlines appearing with half of all Vikings were women, but they'd only found a couple skeletons, some of which were women. And do we then believe that because we found a few skeletons that then this is the case for all of the Viking world, all the hundreds of skeletons? But it has opened a lot of very interesting debate there. Indeed it has. And I think you're right. It's just somewhere in the middle between those two extremes, you know, of we're all female Vikings, these shield maiden types that went off raiding and pillaging alongside of men. You know, I don't really know. It's a very controversial and a very interesting topic. I tend to lean more towards the, the side of it is unlikely that Viking women went off raiding and participated in battle. And I'll just support my claim there, briefly tell you why, and tell me sort of your thoughts on this. So there have been many hundreds of Viking Age burials discovered. That is an undisputed fact. We have a lot of archaeological evidence for the Vikings, but out of the hundreds of burials, we have only a few that contain the skeletons of women. The Anglo-Saxons were very keen on writing things down and describing the Vikings in great detail. Uh, never once in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle have they ever mentioned a Viking female warrior, a shield maiden type. And while some of the Viking burials, in fact, the more recent one that they that they discovered and they, they confirmed the bones of being that of a female, I think it was in um, eastern Sweden, I believe, in a, in a town yeah, called Birka, Sweden. Yeah. That, of course, was a skeleton of a woman who I believe they found a, a sword next to. And that certainly is something to lead us to believe that well, this is a shield maiden and this skeleton is of a female Viking warrior. But an interesting concept is that that woman was dead and had no say in what was placed next to her grave. The family of that Viking woman could have been a family of uh, perhaps soldiers or warriors and had family.
family values and greatly aspire to honor through violence or war or strength. So I don't really find any of the archaeological supposedly evidence supporting the existence of shield maidens. I don't know, Hilbert, what do you well, make on that? Well, I think you that? raise a good point there that obviously the, the find in Birka, which again was as was used by a lot of media outlets to say, oh, look, more evidence for a, I think they said Viking warrior queen or something along these lines. And while it's entirely possible, I think, as you said, it's very important how we interpret various archaeological findings and place it into the proper context. So if you look at the find in Birka, she was buried with, I believe, a, a sword, a, a spear and an axe. But I think rather that this was obviously a very high class individual. And I think potentially what has occurred here is that she may well have ruled a certain group of people in the area. Now, I, I, I think that probably would have happened after the death of her, um, obviously her husband without a suitable heir having occurred, because otherwise I think it would have passed on to the son as happened in most cases. But that then because she was a leader and leadership in that time was associated with war, with the guy who took you out to war, and it, it would be the guy because well, the leaders were men most of the time, unless in that circumstance. And then because she was the leader, she was then associated with rulership, which was associated with war, being a warrior, and therefore she was buried with these items, these objects that um, connotated her being a warrior. Although, of course, then you could say you could flip that and say, well, we do actually have evidence for various shield maiden-like figures from the sagas. And this is absolutely true. There are various women who are described as actually going going out and fighting. There is one who even dresses up as a man and goes out and fights. But then the fact that she dresses up as a man and then goes out and fights says something that it wasn't normal for women to be able to go out and fight as women if she went and dressed up as a man, like in, in Mulan, for instance. And actually there were laws in the Graga, which are the Anglo, um, the Icelandic, sorry, the law codes there that made it illegal for women to dress like men and vice versa. So I think there was definitely a concept of gender roles in society and that the few cases we do find where women are out and fighting are the exceptions, which is why they were written about. And that's an excellent point you've made about gender roles. And I just want to briefly touch on that. You know, uh, the primary occupation of the, the vast, vast majority of Viking women would be to run and manage the household. This, of course, included cooking, making clothes for the family, raising children, etc. The fact that the primary job of most Viking women was indeed running the household is often looked at in a negative light. And I think that people don't understand just how demanding and crucial, you know, this was. People oftentimes don't understand the massive economic and labor contributions that Viking women made to society. Uh, certainly, people tend to think that assuming Viking women stayed at home all day and cooked and cleaned and made clothing is sort of sexist, when in fact it is not sexist at all. These people fail to realize, as I mentioned before, the vital importance that contribution that women made to society, massive effects that they had. Uh, running a household was a very complicated task. And in fact, we have archaeological evidence that shows that the production of cloth and textiles was something that was just allotted to women. And if you think about it, that is an immensely time-consuming job. You have to spin the woolen yarn from the raw fleece, and then you must dye the cloth and then weave it using a loom to sew all of the fabric pieces together. And remember, this is before plastic and before metal 
metal was so widespread. So cloth would have been used for all clothing as well as the sails for the Viking ship, which I just want to briefly touch on the sails of the Viking ship would have actually been around as expensive as the ship themselves. Viking ships and the Vikings in general wouldn't have gone very far without textiles, which of course were manufactured by women. So Hilbert, what do you make of the sort of gender roles or the important part that Viking women had in age and fucking society. I definitely agree with what you said there, that the the roles are are different, but that women were by no means less important than men, rather that the roles were, as you said, different, but that they complemented one another. So one way that I often look at it is that outside of the household, that is sort of the in the traditional Viking sense, that was more the man's domain. So at the thing, for instance, which is the thing was where the people would meet and discuss things and decide things. So for example, in a place like Dingwall in Scotland, the etymology of that is ultimately where they came together to um, discuss things, the Germanic council. And obviously in Iceland, you have the old thing, which was the, the everything essentially where they met. Um, and at this thing, obviously, um, women weren't allowed to speak here. This was the man's domain. And further, obviously, as we've discussed with the whole shield maiden idea, I think that when men went out to battle, unless in very dire circumstances like we see on a last ditch defence, which is when we do have some stories of women taking up arms, like Fredis Eiriksdottir in uh, North America, who is very famous for uh, when the Native Americans were attacking, she scared them off by grabbing a sword and beating her bare breast with it. Um, but to get back to my point, that men outside of the household, that was their domain of power, and that's the more visible domain of power as well. Obviously, we know about the main events that happened. We know that in 845, the Vikings went and burnt Hamburg to the ground. But we don't know that in 845, uh, Gunnhild told her husband to leave because she was sick of him and filed for divorce and inherited the property, which could very well have happened because Viking women were entitled to uh, file for divorce with as much success as men and women were allowed to own and inherit property. And within the household, that's where women held power. They had the purses of or the um, the strings of the purse the strings of the purse string hold on um, essentially they were in control of the finances of the household as you mentioned with things like cloth and linen now you might say oh they're just being made to stop up the man's socks that's incredibly misogynistic but actually if we take it back to the Frisians for instance them living on their terpen so these big man-made hills they would sit and make cloth and it was some of the finest cloth in Europe they gave it to the Franks gave it to the Byzantines as gifts for the emperor. And that would have ultimately been made by a woman. And that was incredibly important, not only for them, but also for the entire society making the sail, for instance. The sail would go on the ship and the ship would go out and trade with people, which would then again help bring money into the household so that the entire family could survive. And of course, while the women are sitting inside making things, cleaning and cooking, the men, for the vast majority of the Viking Age, would be out in the elements farming, because most of them were farmers. And that was by no means an easy job, especially without very good plows and in the harsh climate of Scandinavia. So you've really got to put it in context, I see, and see and think um, that you've got to see power in, in different ways when it came to the various gender roles during this period think that the complementary gender roles between Viking women and Viking men did ensure success and really complemented each other. And while Viking men and their achievements are much more visible, of course, exploration and raiding, that's engaged in the misconception that we have about Vikings in that they were constantly raiding all the time, when in fact, most of the women would have been making cloth and making linen, preparing meals, raising the children along with the father while the father 
father would have been farming primarily and also doing carpentry and mm, uh, working and with metal. Sort of the, um, it was when um, you said that obviously the men in the Viking Age are, are much more w- well known for their actions. But there's the famous saying that behind every, um, what is it, behind yes. every great man is a greater woman. And this certainly rings true with um, some things in yes, the Viking yes. Age, uh, like, for example, in the whole Clontarf saga in Ireland, where you have obviously behind all of the various factions fighting. So you have the Irish with uh, Brian Boru, who is the, the great king who has united most of the Irish kingdoms together. And then you have uh, Sigtrig uh, Silkbeard on the other side and Male Morda. Um, and really, this conflict is seen as being caused by not another man, but by another woman, by um, Gormleth, who is the ex-wife of Brian Baru. And now I believe she was married to um, Sigtrig at the time and that she was the the sister or, or the niece of Male Morda during this fight. So that's one example of where women were really powerful behind the scenes. And this was a huge battle, Klontarf. Thousands of men fought and died. And, you know, that was caused by a woman. Uh, as well in the Icelandic sagas, in uh, Laxdalar saga, some of the most important players in that, arguably the most important player, leading to some speculating that it was written by a woman. They were all women as well. And, and they are often in the saga responsible for goading the men on for saying, no, you need to go out and get revenge for this action, which suggests they had a huge sphere of influence over the men. And so that their power extended from not just the women's sphere of influence inside the household with importance to their contributions to society, to the wider trade, to what went on inside the house, but also over the men's sphere of power and domination outside, literally onto the battlefield. And obviously, Clontarf was hugely important and that influenced world history. Remarkable. And I think that quote that you mentioned before that behind every great man is a greater woman certainly rings true with sort of Viking life successes. It's like you mentioned with um, the sale. That's such a good example for the Viking Age because it's it's what made the Viking Age Viking, you know, the ability to go out and sail. And it really shows that Mm. without Viking women and their role, their traditional role in society, and we'll we'll probably get onto some more shield maiden stuff in a minute, that even their traditional role was essentially essential to their success when they went out and raided. And lots of the laws that made Viking women arguably much more independent and free and less oppressed than most other women in on the continent at the time in Europe and, and definitely throughout the Middle East as well, is that these laws were enacted so that when the men were away raiding, which was it was a very raiding culture, so the laws were designed around that, that women could lead the farmstead. And there were all sorts of protections in the in the law code against obviously women being inappropriately touched while they were away. There were huge punishments to pay for anyone who did that, uh, as well as the fact that obviously in the, the Weregeld system, women were worth more than men. And this is also another important thing to consider that at this time in in the Dark Ages, women were seen as being worth more than men. And this is as it was written in the law code for the Weregeld, which is where you had to pay if you killed someone to stop a feud breaking out. Well, um, especially women of uh, an age where they could give birth, they you'd have to pay a lot more for killing one of them to the family than you would for a man, which also doesn't really make sense. Why would you send out the women to go and fight when you have potentially lost three or four people for the children she can have, uh, whereas a man is, well, you know, you've lost uh, Leif, but, you know, at least his wife can remarry and have other kids. Or if it's a woman, you know, it's a m- much greater loss, if that makes sense. And that's an interesting point, too. The creation of children was certainly such a, an important task to 
Viking culture, but also medieval culture in general. And you think about the concept of a shield maiden and a warrior woman, it's unilaterally accepted that um, those would have been young female warriors as sort of women would not have been capable to yeah, I think perform so. as and well in battle. What, what we do know sort of the various women that we know something about is one of them in um, the sagas, and, and I forget her name now, but she went out and fought for a couple of years and then later settled down and had a family. Which is quite an interesting thing. And it's the same one who wore men's clothing while doing it. And I think for them to have any real chance, they would they would have to be young um, and agile. But that leads me on to another issue with having um, females fighting is that the style of vi- fighting during the Viking Age is not suited to women fighters. And I say this from being a Viking reenactor from the Viking Age, and we have um, quite a few lasses in our groups as well. And they are excellent fighters. Don't get me wrong. Some of the last people standing at York were some of our lasses, and they were absolutely exceptional. And they would give me and anyone else a run for their money, definitely. I mean, I've been killed so many times by the women in my group. Um, the kind of shield wall fighting, um, <laughs> the kind of push and, and shove kind of fighting. And, and remember, these would be big men, so not scrawny teenagers. Ages. These would be people who had lived hard lives, trying to farm in between the fjords, trying to fish out in the cold, working the oars on the Viking ships. These would be big men. These would be strong men who were used to pain, used to the elements, and these would be tough guys. So we're not talking about, you know, little soy boys or, or something like that, if, if that's what you had in mind. But obviously the women would be of tougher stock as well. But remember that biologically speaking, women are a lot less suited to this kind kind of warfare than men are. Obviously, they have um, less upper body strength naturally, uh, even when you compare sort of weightlifters. You know, the world's strongest man can lift quite a lot more than the world's strongest woman. And this is really a disadvantage in the shield war, because in the shield war, it's all about having that kind of clout. If you are pushed onto the floor, you're done. You want to be on your feet. And obviously, if you are a huge 300 pound man, then you're going to have a lot less trouble with that than if you are um, a dainty woman. Um, And obviously, you do get various shapes and sizes of of women and men. But on the whole, biologically, it doesn't make much sense to be throwing your women in from a sociological point of view and from sort of a um, a, a build point of view as well from how uh, the various sexes are built um, and how this would influence the the, the style of fighting, um, which was obviously the shield wall at that time. And, and it was very physically demanding, especially on the upper body with rowing with the sword and spear and shield action and the, the kind of push and shove. It was literally like a huge game of who can push the other shield wall over. That's the kind of fighting we're on about. Yes. And we've kind of segued into another topic, which is great because I've always wanted to get into this myself. You talked about the shield wall and the importance of the shield wall and Viking battle tactic. Yourself being a Viking reenactor, nonetheless, um, what sort of tactics would have been used um, well, during combat? that's an interesting question. What and sort of uh, tactics would the Vikings have used in about combat? It. So if we're talking kind of... Um, meta strategies, then the shield wall was the big formation that was used at the time. So the Anglo-Saxons used shield walls as well. And then it, that would be sort of a, 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 it's a bit of a slugging match, a shield wall. Um, and obviously then it's the first side to run away. And then as soon as one side of the shield wall breaks, there is essentially a rout because the first people to turn their backs and flee are, are cut down. Um, that you do find other instances. So for example, with things like cavalry or archers, we don't have much evidence from the period. They definitely had 
bows for hunting, for example, um, but for fighting much less. Although there there is a very interesting kind of wedge formation that was sometimes employed, which was called the Svinfork. Um, and this is essentially where you had a kind of wedge. And what we do in the reenacting, and this is based on evidence we have for the period, is that they would essentially run at another shield wall and try and go through it. Because the shield wall is very good as, as what it sounds like, a wall made of shields. You can protect the guy on your side with your shield. The guy next to you is protecting you with his. Obviously, then you are looking to jab people down the line. Um, it's a very close, very personal kind of combat. Um, and generally, unlike what a lot of people think, it there weren't that many swords around. Swords require a lot of uh, iron to make, so they were more expensive. So I reckon the, the main weapon you would see on such a battlefield would be the spear in the various combination of a one-handed spear or a two-handed spear and later on a boar spear as well, which is a, a kind of spear which has two wings coming out. The reason being called a boar spear because when you are hunting a boar, if you spear a boar but it keeps going through the spear, if that makes sense, so towards you it can still get you, but essentially the two wings stop the boar from running up the spear and getting you because they were feisty creatures. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's a little bit of an insight into into the kind of tactics of the Vikings, although, although they definitely use some types of subterfuge as well and, and sneaky kind of combat. So for example, in Italy, I forget which city it was, um, when they were trying to get into that city in Vikings, they recreated that in Paris, but they one of the leaders pretended to have died and wanted to be buried inside the city. And then he broke out of the coffin and, and they all charged into the city, which is a, a beautiful scene so that there really was some tactical canny in the way that they fought as well. Remarkable. Yes, I've been always fascinated with strategy and tactics. And unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I'll just ask you this one last question. We can sort of close on this, but uh, the Viking axe is something that's uh, become so notable and so famous. Um, do you guys uh, use yeah, axes in your reenacting? And um, the Vikings have now, um, used battle kind of axes Viking as primary axe, there's a weapons? Few types. One of the most famous is probably the two handed Dane axe, which comes in a little bit later on. And um, these were essentially used by the big guys. And if you ever come up against someone who has one of those, it's absolutely terrifying because they could essentially chop through a shield wall with most of the other weapons. So a spear and a sword and, and one of the one handed axes. So maybe a bearded axe, which you can use to hook shields. Um, so essentially grab, the, it has a sort of beard shape, a sort of kink in the head of the axe. So you can hook it over someone else's shield and then drag it down. And then someone else, your buddy with a spear will notch his spear in. And obviously he's no longer got a shield up and that would be person in the shield wall out of the fight. But with a big Danak, their main focus was to chop up the shield and people behind it as well. Um, and these were formidable weapons. So the Varangians, they, they were famous for using them. And as well, the Anglo-Saxon, Saxons. You obviously got Danish people living in, in the Danelaw area, so in the east and in the north of England. And at Hastings, you have depictions of people using these big Dane axes as well. So the Anglo-Saxons took them over as well. And these, they are definitely formidable weapons when in the right hands. And, and they are famous for, the Vikings are famous for being the axe people, because axes were also useful around on the boat as well, if you remember. They obviously did a lot of sailing. So if you had wood and things like that and needed to make repairs on the ship, then an axe would also be useful for that. Well, thank you very much, Hilbert, for joining me today. It's been an absolute treat to have this discussion with you. I've been a huge fan of your YouTube channel. Big fan of the show. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's been great. Well, you're very welcome. If you enjoyed this episode of the History of Vikings, could you do me a huge favor and write me a review? I love hearing any criticism or feedback that you might have for me. And the more reviews that you guys write, the easier it is for people to find the show. Thank you so much for listening to the History of Vikings.